Hello, and welcome to The Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, immigration reform and DACA. And Richard, immigration reform has been back in the news lately with President Trump now signaling a willingness maybe to do a deal on uh, DACA. That's the acronym for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is the Obama-era policy that protects children who were brought into the country uh, illegally by their parents from deportation. Of course, this happened after the president said that his administration would no longer be going on with the policy. Now they're talking about some sort of potential legislative compromise. This is, of course, sort of contrary to the immigration hawk rhetoric that we usually associate with Trump, and it's irritated some of his supporters, some because they don't like any policy that goes easy on people who came to the United States illegally, others not so much because they dislike the policy but because they think it's a valuable bargaining chip and the president's giving it up too easily. So there's a lot here. Why don't we start by separating out the legal issues from the policy issues? On the legal side, President Obama implements DACA in 2012 by executive order. How firm a legal ground is that order on? And just more generally, how much discretion do presidents have to make policy through executive orders? Well, it, it, these are two different questions of how much discretion you have to put it in place and how much you get rid of it. On the first, um, generally speaking, with respect to executive orders, if it turns out that the legislative history shows a degree of silence, the president is given a fair bit of discretion on what to do. I'm teaching all this stuff right now in constitutional law, actually, and it's amazing how many loose ends there are in the Constitution. Um, uh, you could be an originalist, but the incomplete Constitution is a very accurate description of what takes place given the very spare provisions that we have dealing with the relationship between the legislature and the executive. But in this particular case, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed suggests that you have to have some piece of legislation or some constitutional mandate to do something. If you're talking about being a commander-in-chief of the military services and so forth, uh, that doesn't really seem to be involved in there. Giving a State of the Union address uh, not going to be relevant. Receiving ambassadors not there at all. So you have to do it essentially on the fact that the executive power is invested in one person to with the president. And virtually everybody agrees uh, that you cannot find any specific authority to do this um, if you're trying to think of it as a quasi-legislative program. And the leading expert on that was none other than Barack Obama himself, because before 2012, he must have said on two dozen occasions, this is not the way the American system works. You've got to get some legislation for me to implement. You can't ask me to do it myself. What he then does is he switches grounds and he has not only DACA, which is the uh, Deferred Action Program for Children, but DAPA, which is the program for their parents, which is even bigger. DAPA goes into the uh, political mill and then the judicial mill and it's struck down in the Fifth Circuit and then there's a divided Supreme Court after Justice Scalia dies uh, so that the Fifth Circuit decision is in place and it said you can't do this. My sense about it is that that same conclusion applies to DACA, that you cannot do this 
this by executive order. Uh, what the president says is a form of prosecutorial discretion, and there are two arguments against it. One is all you can do with prosecutorial discretion is not prosecute. You can't tell people they're entitled to social securities cards, state driver's licenses, and the like. So it's beyond discretion. It has to be a form of legislation. And secondly, this program is so enormous that it looks as though it's a partial repeal of the immigration program rather than a prosecutorial judgment made on special circumstances for some limited class of individual. Uh, So I think he probably loses on that. Trump, just trying to get rid of this executive order, he is not worried about exceeding power. He's trying to go back to the situation where he says, I don't have any. He's been sued, I think, maybe by Eric Schneiderman on the theory that he's duty-bound to keep it in place with a, unless he has a notice and comment hearing. Uh, But Obama never did that. This is not a piece of legislation. So I think he's on perfectly firm grounds when he says, I don't have to do this anymore. And it would be a revolution if it turns out one president could do something by executive order uh, unilaterally and the next president to unravel it has to go through a very elaborate procedure which could be drawn out forever. Uh, so that, I think, is what the, the basic situation is. And so, you know, if you're trying to simply do this as a legal matter, the president's on pretty form, firm ground. The question then is, of course, as you would guess, what do we do next? Right. And I'll turn to that in just a second. I just want to footnote for our listeners, Eric Schneiderman, who you mentioned there a minute ago, is pressing suit against the president. That's the attorney general in New York State. So uh, moving beyond that, let's get to the policy side because I know you think DACA should be enacted into law. Give us the case for why. Well, I mean, if you look at the particular program of what's going on, the first thing you note is Obama was so afraid of overreach that he picked a subclass of people who came to the United States who are the most sympathetic targets. They have to come when they're young, so there's no personal fault on their part. It remains with their parents. And, you know, illegality descends to children from parents, but the moral taint certainly does not descend in that way. Um, Secondly, he talks about people who have been productive in the United States, uh, students, people with jobs people getting um, military backgrounds and so forth, no criminal records. It's a pre-select group uh, that you have, which is highly desirable. And in effect, the emotional uh, wrench that the country would suffer by trying to deport 800,000 people in this class would be great. And if you look at particular institutions, DACA people are very much integrated into large numbers of life today. And it's not that you're just going to hurt Um, uh, the DACA people who are basically exiled and deported, you're going to hurt all the American people who work with them, depend upon them, marry them, or dependent on them in a very powerful way. And and so for the most part, you see the hardship stuff. And then you say, well, this is not a legal argument. Yes, we know we can deport illegal aliens. And I think that's correct. Uh, But as a matter of sense, do you want to cut up your nose to spite your face? So it seems to me that uh, the program is basically soundly conceived. Uh, Obama gets credit for that. And we ought to keep Uh, The question is how you keep it, and you mentioned early on the bargaining chip question, and my view is once you start putting bargaining chips on the table, there are going to be many bargaining chips of one sort or another, and the whole thing could unravel. Uh, The president wants his wall, and some people want DACA to become a path to citizenship. All sorts of other issues can be raised in immigration. It's not that I think those things should not be tackled. They clearly have to be, but I think it would be a grave mistake to try to put this all together uh, because what's going to happen is there'll be so many pressures that in the end it's more likely than not that the whole thing will fall to peace. We've already had a taste of this. Um, Pelosi and Schumer goes that we think we got to deal with the president. Then the president says you don't have a deal with me. Um, there are 16 different variations on walls that you can have budgets, timing, locations, or whatever it is. 
And I just think for six months, it's too much to try to negotiate those things. And I would hope that the president, who said perfectly sensible things about um, what DACA does, would recognize that it's better for him to antagonize his base a little bit, because I can tell you, my sense is that he will suffer a political disaster once the human story starts to be told about individuals wrenched out of schools, wrenched out of jobs, wrenched out of military positions, and put unceremoniously back to a country which they've never lived in in their adult life, and whose language they don't speak. Just see the way these headlines are going to play, and you realize they don't have to do this, and it's not as though these people are harming anybody in the United States. One of Trump's terrible rhetorical ploys is he assumes that all that immigrants do is take jobs from other people, and they never create jobs for other people. And it's just not true. They are not a sink. Um, you take a good libertarian organization like Cato, and they've done some excellent studies, which sort of indicate net benefits that come from high-achieving immigrants who really want to live the American dream. And so I think he really has to reconsider. But you know, asking Donald Trump to reconsider anything is a very tall order. <laughs> so to that point... I want to talk sort of more broadly about immigration and economics because the point you just made echoes one that you made in a piece that you wrote recently for Hoover. I'm quoting you here. It is specious economics to fear the displacement of American citizens by foreign workers without considering the benefits that they provide to the economy as a whole. You just sort of made that case for us a moment ago. But Richard, how broadly would you apply that? Because you will find, for instance, a lot of people who will agree with you when it comes to high-skilled labor, but they'll say it doesn't make sense to be importing uh, low-skilled labor when it just depresses wages for people at the bottom who are already having a tough time making ends meet. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, let's first, first starting at the top, um, we don't want to treat this as though it's substitution of one for another. Um, it, it's very important to realize that the American immigration policy that currently exists when it comes to high-level workers is inexcusably protectionist. What you have to do is exactly what Trump wants, show that there isn't somebody domestically who can do this particular job before you can get somebody from overseas. And when you're talking about huge workforces, there's always somebody who's close enough. Uh, so what one develops in this elaborate situation are these fantasy applications as to why everybody who's a perfectly competent professor or worker or draftsman or physicist turns out to be the Einstein of his or her own special profession. And there's a fine art for writing these applications, uh, which borders on the theater of the absurd because Everybody in the immigration system knows it's something of a farce, and everybody who writes the letters knows it's something of a farce, but you, either you dance the dance or you lose the application, so there's a huge cottage industry. What we need to do is to recognize that these people are those who will help them, and if we don't take them in, which is possible, what will happen is the businesses who need their labors will go overseas and start to form other things, and then we'll do is have American subsidiaries overseas, and then Trump will say, you can't have an American subsidiary, so they'll spin it off. And it'll become a separate country and a separate company. It's just a losing strategy to play protection on labor as on goods. And the key thing is we need to develop programs, and I think this would ease a lot of pain. If the programs were for limited visas for particular times without being a path for citizenship, uh, so that many people who work in these large global and international concerns and companies uh, can come here for their three-year tour of duty and then go back to Geneva um, or to Rio de Janeiro or somewhere else, having the necessary skills in English um, and in American markets to be part of that hierarchy. I think that's a perfectly viable market, and the president really ought to do it. At the bottom end, uh, there's a common statement saying, well, there's certain jobs that only immigrants
immigrants will do and Americans cannot be gotten to do them. Um, I think it's absolutely wrong to assume and that somehow or other the American labor market is really very, very rich at the bottom. Um, there's no particular evidence as to why that's the case. We know in places like New York and other cities, there's a huge market that develops with respect to child care at home, many of whom are illegal in some sense of the word. That market just works very, very well. And um, you don't see Americans running to take those jobs in certain kinds of industries like in California where you're doing picking jobs. These are brutally hard jobs at very low wages. In many cases, these are dependent upon foreign laborers as well. And what really happens is wages that are very, very low by American standards are in fact high by the standards of the countries from which people come. And so there is a huge industry in remittances being sent back by these workers who scrimp and save to help their families back home. And as far as I can tell, this is a a win-win kind of relationship. And one of the questions you could start to ask yourself is, we have, say, 10 million illegal aliens in the United States today. Just magically figure out how every restaurant, hotel, real estate operation, car wash is going to operate if all of them tomorrow was sent back. Do you think they would all be filled by Americans taking these jobs? Would there be a massive industrial disorganization taking place? And I think it's clear that there would be the latter. If you allowed people to go home and to come back, many would leave, some would not return. If, in fact, you help improve trade situations in places like Mexico, many people would eagerly go home if they had better jobs. And so one of the ironies is if you stop being very hostile to free trade with places like Mexico, uh, you're going to reduce the willingness of people to stay there and reduce the willingness of people to go home. Generally speaking, you can't believe in open borders. It's always a managed economy. That's the best you can do in immigration. But you can certainly manage it a hell of a lot better than we're doing today. So, Richard, just about the only thing that everyone agrees on with immigration policy today is that nobody likes the status quo. If Richard Epstein is waving a magic wand and getting his ideal immigration reform, what does it look like? Oh, my God, there's so much about this field that I simply do not know about, even though I must say that I've been mesmerized like everybody else on it. Um, I'm not sure what the full situation is, but first, I think you would want to have a program like DACA in place. Secondly, I think you'd want to have a slightly larger refugee program than we currently have today. Um, You can't open it up and create a situation in the United States like Germany. Uh, What you discover is that the people who are going to come out as refugees are going to be young military combatants, men without women, moving at the towns in which they create a lot of social dislocation. That's kind of difficult. You'd probably want to stress bringing families first rather than individual owners into the United States, but I think you certainly would want to do more of that. I think that we should be perfectly happy to take immigration with an eye towards citizenship to reunite families, but there's only so far you could go there. And I certainly think that what we should try to do is to make it very clear that high-tech people are going to be welcome in the United States, both on short-term and long-term tracks. Um, There are probably 50 different classifications in the immigration scheme as it currently exists and it's only a true expert in this field, which I am not, who can sort of figure out where it is that these things work and where it is that they don't. But we do know that with respect to these H-1 visas, which get in technical people, there are constant shortages. The allocated 
amounts that are put out for dinner are often filled up in a day or two. So obviously something has to be done in order to expand that program. When you're ignorant, as I think the country is, and I certainly am, what you'd start doing is to try to figure out the direction in which you'd like to move, which in my case is moderate liberalization on virtually all of these programs, and then move there in small steps, examine for six months and see if something has happened, and then try to fix it up. It's extremely difficult to get comprehensive reform because what you're trying to do is to reset 10 or 20 parameters all at once. And if you're making big adjustments in them, frankly, nobody knows what the world is going on. So I think that DACA gives you an opportunity to take one pretty solid um, immediate step, which after which, if it works out well, we could think about uh, some other steps to take place. I mean, when I always end these discussions, I always remember that my grandparents came from uh, the area in Russia and Poland, and I was born uh, two days before the fight began at the Warsaw Ghetto. So, you know, I'm an immigrant in some sense, or at least my father was a first-generation American, as was my mother. And uh, the blessings of this country have been enormous, and I'm perfectly happy to share them with others because I think that they will contribute a great deal not only to their own welfare and the welfare of their families, but also to the welfare of the United States if you do it right. And I think if we have goodwill, we can find a right way to do it. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.